Hey everybody, welcome to the Delgado Podcast. This is episode one, and we're super excited to feature Dr. John Barton. Dr. Barton is a theologian who served as the Oriel and Lang Professor of the Interpretation of Holy Scripture at the University of Oxford in England for 23 years, and he's been serving as priest in the Church of England since 1973. He has studied and taught the Bible throughout his academic career and has written many books on it, including Ethics in Ancient Israel and his latest book, A History of the Bible, The Story of the World's Most Influential Book. Here's our conversation. Dr. Barton, thank you so much for being on the podcast. You're very welcome. Uh, there's a local bookstore here called Barnes & Noble, and I was walking through, and at the front table, there was a stack of your book, A History of the Bible, and it was one of those titles that just stuck with me. I ended up um, just sitting with it for a while, and as I started to think through, like, I really don't have any sort of understanding of like, how the Bible was compiled. I've, I've had some books in the past that kind of like touched on it, but I've mainly, my interest in the Bible has been more like theological as like, oh, what are the doctrines that the Bible teaches? And I come from like the Protestant tradition. So a lot of my understanding of the Bible was very much shaped by Protestant theology. And so your book really just kind of opened my eyes to see how the Bible has been interpreted, read, throughout the ages by different traditions. So I want to thank you for just compiling this all together. Well, thank you very much. It's, uh, it was very enjoyable to do. And I think it did start from the perception that for a lot of people, the Bible is important and yet also a closed book. They, they know it matters. They're not quite sure why it matters. And they haven't got much idea how it got put together in the first place. So I tried to say how the books got written how they got compiled, and how they've been interpreted down the ages. Those are really the three component parts of the book um, to try and give people some background and a sense of historical distance to that the Bible didn't all come to be at a single moment. Uh, and that it's not our contemporary in a sense, it's an old book which you have to get into rather carefully. But it was uh, it was a very interesting experience to, 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 to in a sense, in this is why the book is so long, to tell everybody, to tell readers everything I know about the Bible in a way. It was a kind of compendium. The Bible is a classic work that's been passed down through the ages, obviously so important to so many different traditions, but also very perplexing, very complex. And anybody who wants to study the Bible, like just opening it up, all of a sudden, like questions, like, what does this mean? How should I be reading this? And you go to the bookstore, and there's all these different study resources and commentaries, and it can be feel very, very overwhelming, especially, Dr. Barton, as I was reading your book and like uh, getting a bigger picture of the different perspectives and different traditions mm -hmm. and how they looked at these books. I felt um, grateful for the kind of you opening my eyes to how different traditions interpreted uh, scripture and also these apocryphal books that weren't included in the canon by certain traditions. Like all of that, I was like, oh my gosh, I have missed out. I feel like my whole life, because I've had very much the Protestant Bible. And then when you start talking yeah. about the apocryphal books and how important those were, I felt like, oh my gosh, I've missed out. <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. I think the apocrypha is not well known to Protestants. I'm because I'm an Anglican, Episcopalian, which means that the apocrypha for me is sort of 
hovering there as something you should know about, even though it's not fully part of the biblical canon as it is in Catholicism. But you do learn a lot from reading it, and it's very important filling in the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament, because it tells you about the kind of traditions and beliefs that were current in Jesus' own day, which was not just the Old Testament, but things from more recent times which didn't make it into the Old Testament. So it's, it's quite, the old, it's quite important in that sense, is bridging the gap. We used to talk about, about it as intertestamental literature, standing between the two testaments. Well, that's not a very nice way of putting it from a Jewish perspective, because there's only one testament to start with from a Jewish point of view. But nevertheless, it did conjure up for Christians the idea that this is literature that fills the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Yeah, I, f- I feel like in my tradition, the the Apocrypha has been just automatically tossed out and mm. really frowned upon in my tradition. And and oftentimes mixed up with, oh, those are all Gnostic texts. Those are all just, you don't want to even bother with it. It's kind of like all mingled together. So I remember even growing up early, like hearing about the Apocrypha or going through my grandma's Bible and she was Roman Catholic and seeing all these extra books that like her Bible was thicker than mine. I, you know, I'm 45 now, never read the Apocrypha, never thought it was something that I should be reading uh, based on my own upbringing and tradition. And you were pointing out like how useful it was by different uh, early early church, like kind of going through and reading these different writings. That's right. Yes. I mean, there, there are some books in the Apocrypha, like the um, the Wisdom of Jesus, Son of Sirach, also known as, in older Bibles as Ecclesiasticus, not to be confused with Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, um, which is a book like Proverbs, only about twice as long, and full of all sorts of wise sayings, which is well worth reading um, even today. And there's nothing in it that in any way conflicts with either Judaism or Christianity. Quite different from the, as you say, the Gnostic texts, which are, you know, texts that have only been discovered in modern times, and which shouldn't be confused with what's in the in the biblical apocrypha at all. They're quite different category of things. But I think people do get worried by the books that didn't make it into the Bible. This book of mine was an attempt certainly to tell them a bit about that, but to concentrate on the books that did get into the Bible and tell people about what they will actually find if they open their Bible and look at it. And it was an attempt to demystify some extent what, what's there. Um, because as you say, if you just open the Bible at random and expect to get something good out of it, you'll probably be disappointed because you don't understand the context or the historical background or the setting within which the texts we've got were written. Unless you do that, you, you don't really stand much chance of making an awful lot of sense of a lot of it. There are great, sublime, inspiring passages that speak across the generations, regardless of whether we know the background. Maybe the 23rd Psalm or something. But for the most part, the material is from an ancient culture, and we do need a bit of background to understand it. And as you say, if you go in a bookstore, you find all these commentaries and devotional books and so on, compared with which my 600-odd pages is not really very much for a book as long as the Bible. Yeah, and I think, you know, I have uh, two young kids, and as I've been, like, especially when they're really little, and my church would always emphasize it's really important for the parents to be reading the Bible to their kids Mm -hmm. and to read Bible stories. And that's, like, was a huge struggle for me 
uh, and continues to be when reading the Bible to my kids, because I'm still trying to figure out my processing it in my, myself. Like, what does this passage mean? And, and then I'm reading this to my kids who are like looking to me like, dad, what does that, what does that mean? How should I be interpreting it? And so I'm glad you mentioned like many passages of scripture are very puzzling because if you don't have the, the cultural background, the traditional background, you don't have that. We don't know the languages. And so all of that makes the Bible many, many times confusing. Quite a distant look in some ways. I mean, obviously for children, there are great kids' Bibles which select bits that children can relate to um, and tell them the stories. Um, but that, that, that's fine. If you want to move on as an adult to reading the book, then you do need a little bit of background. And a bit of background is what I was trying to provide in all these pages, um, just to try and give people a context within which to read it. Yeah, and I love that um, not only did you address the Apocrypha and how the early church and how they looked at Scripture and what they considered to be later on canon, it's funny even today how, especially in my tradition, as I moved into like the Reformed Presbyterian tradition uh, in the middle of my life, there was disputes over the book of James because Luther didn't like the book of James. So even though there was even like a canon, there was disputes over it. Well, that book's not really that useful. That's right. Yes. I mean, Luther was very radical in how he treated the canon of scripture, whereas um, people on the Calvinist wing, the more the uh, the uh, antecedents of the Presbyterian tradition affirmed the whole canon. Luther said, well, you have to discriminate. Some bits are better than others, which is a very radical thing to say for Protestant nowadays. But Luther said, as you, as you rightly say, that James, because it teaches salvation by works, or appears to, is it in conflict with Paul? And we know that Paul is right. So James, well, you know, maybe it has some points, but it's, it's not as good as Paul. So Luther shunted it into a kind of appendix. So in the original Luther Bible, it is there, but it's there along with Hebrews and also with Esther from the Old Testament in a kind of supplement section of books that are in the canon, but which we don't uh, pay too much attention to. But Luther was biblically quite radical in his willingness to comment critically on things in the Bible. Um, and he, he says, you know, James, well, claims to be divine apostle, but he doesn't seem very apostolic to me. Which again, you wouldn't hear from a pulpit in most Protestant churches nowadays. It's very funny to think about how, you know, even though there was a canon, that you mm -hmm. have these radicals like a Luther who were just like, no, I, I don't I really agree that that book doesn't make sense to me in my my own theological thinking. So let's just let's just move that out. That's not really an important book, and it just kind of shows like how different traditions have treated the Bible. Like some, I think we all kind of emphasize certain books over others. What I should say is there's an official canon, which, um, apart from the question of the Apocrypha, Christians all agree on. And where the New Testament's concerned, there's no disagreement. Everybody's New Testament's the same, whatever denomination of Christianity you belong to. But alongside the official canon, there's what I'd call an effective canon, which are the books that actually influence us and that we turn to again and again. And obviously for Luther, that means the main letters of Paul and the Gospels. And it doesn't include... James, or perhaps even some of the other minor letters. Um, and similarly with the Old Testament, Christians affirm the Old Testament in a larger or smaller range of books. But 
for no Christian is every book in the Old Testament equally important. I mean, in practice, nobody's faith depends very much on the book of Nahum, for example, which most Christians are, have trouble in finding and, and certainly in summarising. Um, or even on Leviticus, which, you know, is important in Judaism, but not, hasn't been very central in Christianity because it's all laws about what to do in the sanctuary and that kind of thing. So that there's always an effective canon. And the New Testament writers themselves draw mainly on Genesis, Deuteronomy, Isaiah and the Psalms. Now, that's not to say they didn't recognise the other books as sacred, but when they want a quotation, those are the books they go to first. So they have an effective canon that consists mainly of those four books, I think. I think that's quite a useful distinction to draw. It may make people feel better about it. They feel that, you know, I don't read the whole Bible. Well, most people never have read the whole Bible, actually. And, and that's not necessarily a fault. But I think that's a point worth stressing. a really good point because I, I think about how when I was younger and I started to first read the Bible for the first time the thing that drew me was like New Testament because those those were I felt closer to me like they made a little more oh the gospel accounts these narratives like I could understand more of the narrative accounts and then the letters from Paul seem very like many times personal like speaking to me almost mm. uh, Old Testament felt very much more distant and archaic and bloody and wars. And I was like, ah, oh, that's, and in my tradition, I was like, and in my church specifically, it was like, well, that's Old Testament. We don't really worry about, it was helpful for prophecy, but it, that's really the extent of it. And so uh, I felt like a oh, New Testament, I can actually maybe spend more time in. And still today, I think I probably gravitate toward Paul's letters and the gospels. And I think for most Christians who aren't, you know, professional biblical scholars being paid to read it, as it were, um, I think the New Testament is the place to start. Sometimes I'm asked, you know, where should I start in reading the Bible? And I always say, well, start with the first books in the New Testament to be written, which means First Thessalonians and Galatians, which are older than the, than the Gospels, and read those and learn what the early church was like just 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus. Then move on to the Gospels, which were written a bit later, but obviously rest on memories of them. And only then turn to the Old Testament. I, I, that, that's the sort of advice I give people. And obviously, if, if the person in question is Jewish, then they're going to be concentrating on the Old Testament, and they'll read, as of almost the Torah, the, 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 the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. But for a Christian, I think the New Testament is the natural place to start. I, 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 my heart sinks when people say I've decided to read through the whole Bible this year, starting with Genesis. So I think that we'll, we'll probably give up in the middle of Leviticus, like a New Year's resolution, you know, yeah. by about the 30th of January, it's beginning to get a bit shaky. And, <laughs> and you won't get to the, to the really central things. You won't get to Isaiah, you won't get to the Psalms, and you won't get to the New Testament. And I think if people want to read the whole Bible through, they should at least you know, read alternately chapters of the Old and New Testament, rather than trying to go right through the whole thing from the beginning. 
which is a daunting prospect because it is so long and not the most helpful way of doing it. Yeah, and I feel like sometimes, like, when we take on these, like, tasks of, like, I have this goal, I want to read through the Bible, and you, you get your Bible reading plan, and it's all good intentions. Like, you just you just want to get through it, but you're right. You get to these points in the Old Testament, like Leviticus or Numbers, and I feel like I'm just reading words at this point. Like, I'm just kind of, like, rolling through and kind of like, okay, I'm just, I just need to get through it. But some of these, <laughs> a lot of the Bible, like, there is so much there and like we don't have the cultural understanding of what's happening in the text. We can just, we're so distant from it. It's almost like, am I, I'm not even like getting it. Like I'm just like reading the words, but I don't really understand the impact and what this actually means. I think that's right. I mean, I'm very lucky because I think the Bible is a great and very interesting book and I've actually been employed to study it and teach it. Um, And, and therefore I can look at, Leviticus, so I can look at numbers and think. I've got a clear profile in my head of what the book is like. I know what to get out of it and what to go to it for. But the average Christian hasn't got time to spend thinking, have I really got the right take on numbers? They need to read the Gospels, if I can put it that way. I mean, I'm not, I don't want to sound patronizing as though good enough for them. But what I'm saying is that, that to be able to read the whole Bible with real Devotion and interest is a luxury and implies more time than most people have got to spend on it. And if you have got limited time, then you go for the most important bits. And that does mean what, again, Lutherans sometimes call the canon within the canon, which is the central books like the Gospels and Paul and certain Old Testament books like Psalms, um, but not the more obscure bits of Leviticus. Which are yeah. fascinating, but you know, not not the place to start. Yeah, and I think what's hard is like, depending on your church tradition and or what your or what your local church or pastors are saying. Like, in my tradition, we would say the whole Bible is inspired. It's it's all useful for instruction, and so in that way, it kind of levels things out. Like every book of the Bible should be studied but like you said some books are going to require a lot more study and research and sometimes we don't have the luxury even pick apart um a certain old testament book or even a new testament book to like fully understand the the scope and who was writing it and why was it written and who was it for how was that used and and even like you know the old testament written by the jewish tradition like to how were how did Jews like interpret that passage versus how am I in 2021 looking at this passage? Yeah, that's right. Uh, yes, I mean I think the problem with saying that all the books are equally important is if you're not careful, they all become equally unimportant um, because they're all supposed to be important. And then you read one and then you find it's obscure, then it might put you off the whole lot. And there's a kind of all or nothing mentality which is there in other areas of Christian life too. You know, if there's a, I mean, like the, the conservative view, if there's a single mistake in scripture, then the whole of it's nonsense. And of course, then people find a single mistake and they give up on the whole thing and cease to be Christians. And I, I would want to say, you know, we need a more subtle approach in that in which you say, no, there are more and less important things. And, you know, if one of the numbers of how many people walk through the desert in Exodus is a bit wrong, 
that doesn't call in question the reality of Jesus's resurrection. There isn't a, uh, it isn't a slippery slope. And once you start, you end up with nothing left at all. It's a matter of degree. And I think that's really important. And Christians can get very upset and perplexed because they find some really insignificant problem in the Bible. And then it makes them feel the whole thing is shifting around. I don't know where I am any longer. But if you, one can just see that some things are more important than others, that feeling can evaporate. I think. Yeah, I think those are that's that's comforting because I think that's where a lot of us end up as you start to study the Bible or just read the Bible and you start to uncover some discrepancies, some different ways that things are written about, or even as you mentioned in your section on the New Testament, how the gospels are written and different mm-hmm. uh perspectives on it, uh telling the same story but referring to different amounts of people there or and that, that can all like cause you to question like, well, I thought all of this is supposed to be completely accurate, but you have different ways of things being told, like that story is being told in different ways. And then um, when you were talking about even some of the Pauline, the letters that we would say are Pauline, like um, you start, mm-hmm. you were raising how scholars, academics uh, would say that, that books like Ephesians were probably not written by Paul. And there's, there's questions there. And, and, Right. And, and like, and for, right. And so for me, like, well, the Bible says it says written by Paul. So I need to trust it. Mm. Right. So that, that calls into question on your view on scripture and errancy and those types of things. That's right. I mean, I have a bit of a problem with that because, um, not because of the inspiration question so much as just that, um, if you say I'm Paul and you're not, then strictly speaking, you're not telling the truth. And however good the quality of the writing is, and Ephesians is a great book about the breaking down of barriers between Jews and Christians in the church, but nevertheless, it does claim to be by Paul, and it isn't, perhaps, people think. And um, it was a culture in which people did understand about Paul theory and did disapprove. I mean, it, it wasn't the case that they just thought, well, I can ascribe it to Paul and pretend it's by him and it doesn't matter. It was a culture in which people were attuned to let, to documents being falsified by others. And so um, had it got known in the early church, it wasn't my fault. People would have said, well, in that case, we probably shouldn't read it. But so um, I have a problem with that. As I say, it's not so much a worry about the inspiration. It's just a worry about the honesty of the attribution. Doesn't apply in the same way with Old Testament books. I mean, the book of Isaiah is probably not all by Isaiah, but in a sense, nobody ever said it was. I mean, it's called the book of Isaiah, but it doesn't say I Isaiah tell you the following in all in all parts of the book, or the Proverbs are said to be the Proverbs of Solomon in the in the title, but there are very few of them that claim to go back to Solomon. In fact, so. That's more a matter of having somebody as a kind of figurehead of the tradition. And the Psalms of David are the same, that they're not all by David, and some of them don't even say they're not by David. Psalm 90 says it's by Moses in the text. Um, so it's not the same problem. But in the New Testament, you've actually got books positively claiming, I, Paul, wrote this. Yeah. And one great case, of course, is... is Two Thessalonians, which people think isn't by Paul, in which he actually says, don't be misled by letters claiming to come from me which aren't really by me. And that's in a book that 
most scholars think isn't bipolar. So there, there is a problem. And I think, you know, I, I haven't solved it. I don't know what the answer is. Because some of this writing is great theological writing, but it probably isn't Pauline. Uh, I don't know what we do with that. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny because um, when you called that out, actually the book of Ephesians was the very first book that I remember being in high school youth group. And that was the very mm -hmm. first book that we studied. And right. so that, that, that book has special meaning to me. Yeah. And then when you called it out as, oh, this is probably, probably wasn't written by Paul, but still useful and, and good for us to read. But it's good that everyone knows that, you know, academics pretty much say that, that the, the way that the sentences were structured, the, the words that are used, and there's all these different reasons why you point out that Ephesians and some other books were probably not written by Paul. Um, it was like very like, oh, really another another book that I have to like reconsider. Still useful, of course, and I, and I still get yeah, yeah, quite. I mean, I have a colleague who wrote a commentary on Ephesians, and who thinks that um, there's a core of Ephesians which is by Paul, and it's been embroidered and added to. Now, if that's true, that wouldn't be such a problem because we know that books got added to over time. And that's true probably even of the major letters of Paul, which are bits that other people have added. Um, but if, if that's right, if there's a core that's by Paul, then the same problem doesn't arise in the same way. But um, if, if there isn't, then we do have to face this question. that We've got a book in the New Testament that isn't by who it claims to be by. This doesn't apply to the Gospels, because none of the Gospels claims to be by anybody. I mean, they've got titles, you know, according to Mark, according to Matthew and so on. But those we know are much later titles than the original Gospels themselves. And there's nowhere in the text of Mark or Matthew that says this was written by Mark, this was written by Matthew. So the, the Gospels are not pseudonymous, they're anonymous. They have no claimed authors at all. But it does just apply to one or two Paul's letters. I love that also you point out chronology of books and how that's really important when studying the Bible. And you um, you talk about how the the gospel according to Mark Mark was probably the first one that was written. Is that is that right? For the gospel That's the general consensus among scholars. I mean, with all these ideas about the New Testament and how it got written, they're hypotheses. Nobody knows for sure the answer to any of these questions about dating. But the, the vast majority opinion is that Mark is the earliest of the Gospels and written probably around 70, so 40 years after the mm. of Jesus. And then the other Gospels a bit later. If, um, if you were uh, encouraging someone to read a Gospel account, which one would you say would be a good one to start with? I would start with Mark um, because it's the earliest. It's also the shortest. Um, it's rather more rough-edged than the others. In the, I mean, the Greek is, is not very good Greek, actually. Um, oh. But in English, of course, you don't see that. But it's it's quite um, abrupt in some ways. But it has got the essentials of the traditions about Jesus in it. And I, I would personally start with Mark, because what you notice immediately is it doesn't have a birth story. Mark starts with John the Baptist in the wilderness and Jesus' bone baptism doesn't tell us anything about how he was born, which you have to go to Matthew and Luke. 
Um, so it's a bit of a shock. But I would say that Mark is the one to start with. So my my order goes First Thessalonians, Galatians, Mark. You want to sort of pres prescription. Oh, okay. Yeah. I thought it was also interesting how you pointed out, you mentioned how the book of Mark doesn't reference the virgin birth. That would just mm. jumps right into, and that was a really interesting point that you made about how, especially my Protestant tradition would pick out certain elements as being really essential to what it means to be a Christian. And, and obviously the virgin birth is part of the creeds. Um, very, very important. Things like the Trinity, hugely important. But I often think about, and I was reading what you said about how we've kind of chosen certain things as like, this was what Christianity teaches. But I'm thinking like, oh, if I just was on a desert island with a Bible, I probably wouldn't emphasize things like the virgin birth or the Trinity. I wouldn't really even have a no. complete understanding of what that is. No, that was rather my point, as you say, say that um, I mean, I'm not saying the Virgin Birth isn't true or that the Trinity isn't true. Um, and I'm not saying they're not compatible with what's in the Bible, because the Virgin Birth is in the Bible. What, what I'm talking about is what predominates, you know, what, 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 what calls the shots. And neither of those doctrines is central to the New Testament in the way that, for example, Paul's doctrine of justification by faith is central. And yet that isn't in the Creed, and the other two things are in the Creed. Mm. So that my point is that this is why I try to introduce this idea of a kind of Venn diagram. That you've got two circles overlapping. One of which is the contents of the Bible, and the other which is the contents of the Christian faith, as in the Creeds. And they overlap, but they're not identical. As you say, if you're on a desert island with the Bible, you wouldn't then, when you were picked up 30 years later, say, well, I've um, come to the conclusion that virgin birth and the Trinity are central to Christianity. And similarly, if you were on the desert island with a creed, that you wouldn't then be able to predict all the contents of the Bible from that. Mm. Because there's no total correlation between the two. Okay, I'm going to pause right there. And in our next episode, we're going to continue our conversation with Dr. Barton, where we talk about discrepancies in the Gospels. He's going to share with us how to deal with difficult and obscure texts, why it's important to be a resistant and critical reader of the Bible, and what sorts of commentaries and study tools are useful to help us understand biblical texts. So that's next time. Take care.